0: It's, it, is, yeah. it looks very lovely. It was a very <laughs> lovely event. I really wish your daughter all the happiness. Thank and Thank you. you
1: for inviting us. Yeah, yes, congratulations. No, oh, thanks, thanks. And of
0: course, one thing we forgot to mention is that weddings are a way of helping new couples get on their feet as well. There are no wedding registries in Taiwan, but each guest brings a gift of cash tucked in a red envelope. It's important to ensure the amount you give is an even number and to avoid the unlucky number four altogether. This money helps cover the great expense of hosting a banquet, which can be exorbitant, in big cities like Taipei especially. And it also helps give the newlyweds a financial leg up as they start the rest of their lives together. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lynn with In the Spotlight.
1: Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lynn. Alyssa Chu is founder and CEO of Anchor Taiwan. When she went to college in Canada, she fell in love with studying economics because she said there's more to economics, like it's also about human psychology. Alyssa is also a photographer and a globetrotter. She took one year off in between jobs and traveled the world, especially to those less traveled places, since she figured that she wouldn't be going to those places during regular vacations if she were on a job. She took photographs and interviewed people there doing what they do every day Today, we will get to what is Anchor Taiwan, but first we're going to find out whether she ever thought about making photography her career
3: I once Thought that might be a possibility because I had this sort of like romantic fantasy of being a war zone photographer. Uh-huh. And I think <laughs> during that, and, and that I guess comes back to this sense of justice and fairness, mm. wanting to tell stories for the world, for people, things that people should know more about. But I think during my world travels, there were incidents where I realized that I'm probably not the most suited for that. But you did actually
1: um, kind of like took part in some contest because you won this
3: photography documentary thing,
1: right? Mm-hmm.
3: at the time one of my stories was selected into this book called The Other 100 it's an open call for competitions with photography um, photographers from around the world with stories to highlight different founders like very often you know we have like Forbes 30 on the 30 Fortune 500 the most the, you know like richest 100 people so on and so forth but the idea is that there are a lot of other people's stories that's still worth sort of like sharing and highlighting and I did this story with this bakery in Bosnia oh. that got selected into this competition okay let's talk about Anchor Taiwan hmm. what is it exactly it's a hard question to answer <laughs> <laughs> But I would say on the surface, uh, we have two major parts. The first part is our signature entrepreneurial residency program. The other side is what we started this year with an early stage investment arm. So the first part, essentially, we believe that there should be a better way for cross-border exploration, either for business development or for personal career progression to really understand different culture, industries from different parts of the world. And in this case, in Taiwan. So essentially what I design um, is this one month program to really bring over top entrepreneurs and tech professionals from around the world to come to Taiwan. And depending on their needs and their interests, we curate different events training sessions, company visits, so on and so forth, into this one-month period of time. From this year, we also started having a shorter period of um, program for business or political leaders who might not be able to come for such an extended um, long period. Mm -hmm. And the investment arm is the idea to identify and invest into some of the top technology and teams that we bring over. So essentially adding an additional catalyst to bring the world to Taiwan. For some people, they just really wanted to come here to immerse themselves in a different culture, to understand different industry, so that they might uh, want to build their next big idea for Mm -hmm. their company, or they might want to take that back home to then, you know, like further their career. So
1: how's this one month program, you said this entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. uh, residency program, how
3: many people are involved in program at a time? Mm -hmm. It's not one on one right it's no it's but it's very boutique because each person, when we select into them into the program, we actually do a lot of work before we even bring them over. So typically, our typical program size is in between five to 10 companies or five to 10 founders. And they go through a very rigorous selection process. First, they apply into the program. If they get selected, then uh, a lot of preparation and business development preparation starts before they arrive. So say, for example, a founder might have this idea that, hmm, I heard that there are a lot of software engineers in Taiwan and I potentially would like to build a team over there. Or a founder might have this need that, hmm, I have these hardware products and I need a manufacturing partners to help me realize my dream. Mm. So each founder, they have different needs and interests. So once we select them into the program, then we kick off our preparation and our connections with our partners here to prepare their soft landing here in, in Taiwan. I'm thinking that it must have been an
1: amazing job for you to build up a really solid base here in Taiwan because you're trying to connect all these people abroad with the locals
3: here. But you have to first get to know the locals Mm -hmm. and these locals have to trust you. Yeah yeah it's very crucial for us to show our commitment with the locals and that's also why we see ourselves as an ecosystem builder so it's not like we come here and all of a sudden we just tell you that hey let's do business i i believe that that's not what um how issue works so we spend a lot of time building our communities we want to show that we are here to bring value also for the local communities and for the local entrepreneurs and that's why over and over again we we'll Throw events to have sharing sessions for very often founders that we bring over for them to share their expertise or perspectives that they can bring from Silicon Valley, from Europe, from many div- different parts of the world. And it's this type of win win cross border collaboration that we want to cultivate. Mm.
1: Wow, that's great.
3: How old is Anger Taiwan now? We had our first cohort in June 2017. So now we have finished eight cohorts, including one shorter one with business political leaders um, that lasts for 10 days. Okay. So cohorts as in like each badge is like uh, one month. Oh, 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 okay. Right. Right. Our signature program is one month.
1: Okay. Right.
3: And how many of these programs do you have in a year? Usually about three. three one-month program and we'll have shorter one, usually sort of like tailor-made for corporates for a shorter period of time. That's saying like sometimes two to three days, sometimes 10 days for a very particular business development needs. Two to three days. You don't get to know Taiwan in two, three days. (laughs) You don't. That's why I personally really love the one-month setup. Yeah. However, unfortunately, you know, like very often for corporate executive or business political leaders, they just really cannot be here. If I could, I would. Right.
1: Okay. You came up with the name Anchor Taiwan yes it makes a lot of sense <laughs> <laughs> <I hope> so <laughs> you know you hope that they once they come they got to know taiwan they really put the anchor here in taiwan yes yes yeah um bringing the world to taiwan going back on how you used to have a lot of fears
3: are you still faced with fears i do i think i still try to tackle that every day It
1: seems like you have a a lot of passion And compassion for people Mm -hmm. um, Whoever they are Coming from abroad or even like local I've read about some interviews about you And it seems like you're a very down-to-earth person (laughs) You know, even though you're a successful You know, women entrepreneur and everything But the thing is that you're very down to earth. You seem to really uh, have that personable personality, personable person. What, what word is that? <laughs> you know, with people that mm. you that you come in contact with. That's how mm. I get the feeling about you. Am I right?
3: I, I mean, would hope so. Yeah, and I think that's probably in a way related to my training or my passion as a photographer, especially around documentary photography because you know like one thing I think very important for successful documentary photography is that you need to be able to build that connections with anybody like say for example when I am in a foreign country when I am trying to shoot a story in a local market I need to be able to instantly build that trust and that connection with someone that I may not speak the same language with and very often these days I think one of my superpowers is I, I really can speak to pretty much anyone. I can have a conversation with them. And I think largely because I have this really genuine curiosity for right. human beings, for other people.
1: I, yeah, I think I totally know what you mean. Um, I'm always curious about my guests I <laughs> go on my program <laughs> from inside out and everything. Mm. But so how many successful, these courts that you have, I mean,
3: how many successful cases mm have you had in these last, what, two, three years? Yeah, we have quite a few amazing stories I love. So out of the seven cohorts, seven signature one-month cohorts that we hosted, four of them we have got founders who either met the co-founders and eventually moved to Taiwan to set up their companies. Oh, great. Or, yeah, set up a team here to work with Taiwanese talents or to set up an office here to work with uh, manufacturers here in Taiwan or to raise funding here in Taiwan. And it's really through a lot of these stories, like I have constantly entrepreneurs who came to me and say, hey, Lisa, you know, like, Anchor Taiwan changed my life. Hmm. Because some of these people, it's their first time in Taiwan and or, or first time in Asia even. And through this program, and, you know, again, this is not only us we really rely on a lot of partners and good friends out there to do this together because to showcase what Taiwan has got for the world, this is not possible through either one person, one platform, one company. Really, this is a joint effort. And because of that, we see um, these foreign founders now living in Taiwan, who knows eventually might settle here and Uh growing the team. And we would like to have more more and more
0: of that here. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin.
1: Let's assume that this is a platform to really, you know, uh, promote Taiwan. What would you say that's great about Taiwan? That people should really consider this as the anchor?
3: Yeah, there are (laughs) so many awesome things about Taiwan that I think the world, to a large extent, still overlooks. Uh, first of all, the people here are just like brilliant. And uh, we have amazing talent for both software and hardware, which is actually when you think about it, it's not that easy to find with talent that process like both sides of the skill sets. And in term, when it comes to design, when it comes to creative talent, we have a lot of those here in Taiwan as well. So, you know, like for entrepreneurs looking to build a team to help you with your products and your services, this is really one. of the top places to come but in addition to that Taiwan is very unique in a sense that we have a huge sector with small medium businesses a lot of hidden champions traditional industries many of these people they're um, potentially your partners to work with especially when it comes to hardware manufacturing but in addition to that A lot of this can also be your potential clients, especially for people who are building solutions to disrupt the traditional industries. So that's also a huge area to really look into. And we have heard over and over stories about some of this initially maybe kind of like strategic partnership relationships turns into a strategic investment relationships. And we totally believe that there will be more and more of this sort of like coming. And in addition to that, Taiwan is also a great test market. It's a great place for uh, people who want to run their pilots. You know, it's mm. big enough with 23 million of population and very sophisticated um, target audience. But, you know, small enough for, for you to have things under control. So for early stage entrepreneurs, it's one of the top designations for you to test out a few things before you launch in a full scale. Wow, you've just listed all the great factors, really, that There are many,
1: I've never, many more. Realized. I can go on, on, on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure, but that's enough to really inspire me already. But um, that, that is amazing. Yeah, now I realize that I thought that you are a techie person, mm. but then I realized that actually, you know, with an economics major, but actually you just realized that there's this great potential in technology side uh, in Taiwan that people should take advantage of.
3: Yeah, I don't really have a really deep Technical background, even though I did go through, you know, quantitative trading um, with training more on the economics and math side, but not really in terms of um, engineering. Like I know a bit of financial engineering, but not the tech engineering. Engineering, I see anchor or myself more as a bridge. So I think very often it's about whether you have someone who speaks the language from both sides, technology and business, and being that translator to basically tell the stories to the world. Because very often what I see is we have this amazing technology. Uh, we have so many patents, say, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. But how do we tell the story? How do we actually have a relatable examples when we want to tell our, say for example, our foreign entrepreneurs how amazing and how established this Taiwanese company is. Very often if you just tell them, you know, like in terms of their revenue and all that, that might not be that easy for them to relate. A big role or mission that I see with myself is to really always find that relevant parts to make the translation for both sides to understand. It's
1: really been great talking to Elisa. We need more people like you. Thank you. And, you know, don't all these great things to really promote Taiwan and you know we do aim to globalize Taiwan and all that but it takes like what are the practical steps of doing that and people like you is kind of like the pioneer of that I think thank you there's still
3: a lot of things that we need to do and we want to do but uh, step by step and very thankful for all of the partners and friends along the way great great thank you Alyssa no problem thank you for having me
2: Classic Shorts Stories from Chinese History and Literature
4: Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Poetry not only gives us a window into the hearts and minds of the poets in ancient China, it also serves as a record of history, a personal perspective on the intriguing people, places, and incidents of the time. Now, Du Fu of the Tang Dynasty is known not only as one of the most prominent poets of the dynasty, is also known as a narrator of Chinese history. Today, let us enjoy his works as he offers us a unique look into the fascinating people and places of the time. Today, we look at two of his poems, one singing the songs of an old cypress tree and another about an unforgettable dancer. Here's the song of an old cypress. Beside the temple of the great premier stands an ancient cypress with a trunk of green bronze and a root of stone. The girth of its white bark would be the reach of forty men. And its tip of kingfish blue is 2,000 feet in heaven. Dating from the days of a great ruler's great statesman. Their very tree is loved now and honored by the people. Clouds come to it from far away, from the oo cliffs. And the cold moon glistens on its peak of snow. East of the Silk Pavilion yesterday I found the ancient ruler... And wise statesmen both worshipped in one temple. Whose tree with curious branches ages the whole landscape, In spite of the fresh colors of the windows and the doors. And so firm is the deep root, So established underground that its lone lofty boughs Can dare the weight of winds. Its only protection, the heavenly power, It's only endurance, the art of its creator. Though oxen sway ten thousand heads, they cannot move a mountain. When beams are required to restore a great house, though a tree writes no memorial, yet people understand that not unless they fell, it can use be made of it. Its bitter heart may be tenanted now by black and white ants, But its odorous leaves were once the nest of phoenixes and pheasants. Let wise and hopeful men harbor no complaint. The greater the timber, the tougher it is to use. And this one is called A Song of Dagger Dancing to a Girl Pupil of Lady Gong Sun. On the 19th of the tenth month in the second year of Dali, I saw in the house of Fei official Yuan De, a girl named Li from Ling Ying, dancing with a dagger. I admired her skill and asked who was her teacher. She named Lady Gongsun. I remember that in the third year of Kai Yuan at Yanhen, when I was a little boy, I saw Lady Gongsun dance. She was the only one in the Imperial Theater who could dance with this weapon. Now she is aged and unknown, and even her pupil has passed the heyday of beauty. I wrote this poem to express my wistfulness. The work of Dong Xu of the Wu District, that great master of grassy riding, was improved by his having been present when Lady Gongsun danced in the Ye District. From this may be judged the art of Gongsun. There lived, years ago, the beautiful Gong Sun, who, dancing with her dagger, drew all from four quarters, an audience like mountains lost among themselves. Heaven and earth moved back and forth following her motions, which were bright as when the archers shot the nine suns down the sky and rapid as angels before the wings of dragons. She began like a thunderbolt, venting its anger, and ended like the shining calm of rivers and the sea. But vanished are those red lips and those pearly sleeves, and none but this one pupil bears the perfume of her fame. This beauty from Ling Ying at the town of the white god, dancing still and singing in the old blithe way. And while we reply to each other's questions, we sigh together, saddened by changes that have come. There were 8,000 ladies in the late emperor's court, but none could dance the dagger dance like Lady Gongsun. Fifty years have passed like the turning of a palm. Wind and dust filling the world obscure the imperial house. Instead of the pear garden players who have blown by like a mist, there are one or two girl musicians now trying to charm the cold sun. There are man-sized trees by the emperor's golden tomb. I seem to hear dead grasses rattling on the cliffs of Kutang. The song is done, the slow string and quick pipe have ceased. At the height of joy, sorrow comes with the eastern moon rising. And I, a poor man not knowing where to go, must harden my feet on the lone hills towards sickness and despair. Du Fu expresses such vivid depictions and sentiments of the intriguing people and places of the Tang dynasty. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So.
2: News playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you. Brought to you by Radio Taiwan International.
5: You're listening to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chell, your program host. Today, I will feature stories that are related to Hong Kong crowds took to the streets of Hong Kong in early June to protest a new Chinese extradition law. It was the largest demonstration the city has seen since its reunification with China in 1997.
6: Over a million people hit the streets of Hong Kong on Sunday to protest a proposed Chinese extradition law. That figure, an estimate of organizers, represents about one-seventh of the city's population of 7.5 million. The protests began in the afternoon with a three-kilometer march to Hong Kong's legislative council. Council building The crowd didn't disperse until the early hours of Monday morning. At stake was a bill that would allow authorities to extradite suspects from Hong Kong to China. Hong Kong officials say they would have the final say over who gets extradited. Critics say the law opens the door for Chinese authorities to poach political and business adversaries. They say that it would essentially cancel Hong Kong's semi-autonomous status. Also, the law would not only apply to Hong Kong residents. Anyone who passes through Hong Kong would be subject to extradition to China without the guarantee of a fair trial. Protesters say the law is not in the interest of the city's people. They say that local leaders are merely following the wishes of Beijing.
0: More importantly, Hong Kong government and the Chinese government are not on an equal footing. So if Chinese government like make a promise to Hong Kong, and say, oh, we would not extradite political dissident, we would ensure fair trial, and if the, the Hong Kong government extradites its people, its citizens, back to China, and China breach its promise, there's nothing Hong Kong government can do. So there is no way that Chinese Hong Kong citizens should trust the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government.
6: It's not just Hong Kong residents that are worried. Members of the expat business community are also concerned about the extradition law.
2: Well We obviously remember all the things happening in Beijing with the the two Canadians that um, were um, sort of picked up um, in response to the uh, CFO of Huawei uh, being uh, arrested. Um, People are really, really well, people like myself, expats, are really, really uh, cautious about this type of thing, thinking that China could actually come and impose those type of tit-for-tat kind of uh, arrests without warrant. really. Um, so people are really, really worried about that.
6: Later on Sunday night, the protest turned violent with police in riot gear brandishing batons and using pepper spray to break up the crowd. According to the Hong Kong police, three officers were injured during the conflicts. At least seven people were arrested during the demonstration. Leslie Liao, RTI News.
5: And a group of Hong Kong students studying in Taiwan showed support for the protests in Hong Kong. They staged a sitting in mid June at a culture center in the southern city of Kaohsiung. Over a million people took to the streets of Hong Kong on Sunday to protest a proposed extradition bill. Deng Junru, a Hong Kong student studying in Taiwan, has been watching the protest on his phone. He is deeply concerned about the situation. On Wednesday, Deng and his fellow students from Hong Kong staged a sitting at the Kaohsiung Culture Center. chanting oppose extradition to China, removed the ill-intentioned bill.
1: and says that
5: today's Hong Kong is tomorrow's Taiwan. What's happening to Hong Kong today is something that Taiwan will face tomorrow. He says Taiwanese people could become victims in the future if they don't pay attention to the issue. These students say they hope more Taiwanese people can understand the situation in Hong Kong. Another Hong Kong student, surname Le, says that although he's not in Hong Kong, he and others will do what they can. He says they don't want to see Hong Kong change so fast. Some of the placards they are holding show Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam's photo, along with the three Chinese characters, which say liar. And we also have a story about a famous Hong Kong bookstore owner, Lan Wing
1: Kei. Hong Kong saw its biggest protests in history this weekend. Two million people demonstrated against a controversial extradition bill that could enable Chinese authorities to detain anyone in Hong Kong and punish them in China. One famous Hong Kong citizen who suffered such a fate is the former owner of Causeway Bay Books, Lam Wing Winggei. He was kidnapped in 2015 by Chinese agents for selling books banned in China. Lum was allowed back to Hong Kong in June 2016 to pick up a hard drive listing the bookstore's customers. But he skipped bail and fled to Taiwan after he heard about China's plans for the extradition bill. When invited to speak at Taipei's Buffalo Bookstore on Monday, Lum warned people in Taiwan about China.
6: (laughs) You are all in a very dangerous situation. More dangerous than me because I know I am not going back. I know that I am wanted, but do you know that you are wanted by China? Probably not, and that's where the danger lies.
1: Last week, Hong Kong police used tear gas and rubber bullets against the demonstrators. The protests have led to a suspension of the bill, but there's no guarantee it will be withdrawn. People in Hong Kong are anxious about their future. Lam thinks they should be.
6: The extradition bill is like adding a knife. I'm rather pessimistic. From my understanding, what really can Hong Kong people do? Even if you have 3 million or 4 million people coming out in protest, what really can that do?
1: Lam hopes the Taiwan government will let him stay in Taiwan. He would like to open a bookstore in Ximending to inspire young people to read and provide a place where people can connect. Democratic Progressive Party Secretary General Luo Wenjia had invited Lam to his bookstore to have a dialogue on Tuesday. Luo also is not optimistic about Hong Kong and China.
6: After all of this, the people of Hong Kong are going to face more challenges and darker days.
7: They will need much courage.
1: At their bookstore dialogue, Luo gave Lam a book about courage. Lam plans to continue to stand up to China and hopes he can sell books freely in Taipei. Taipei.
2: This is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound.
5: Hong Kong activist Joshua Wong says freedoms in Hong Kong are diminishing.
4: On the 22nd anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong to China, democracy activist Joshua Wong speaks with Democratic Progressive Party Secretary General Lo Wenjia via video conference. Joshua Wong is the Secretary General of the pro-democracy group Demosisto. The 22-year-old was just released from prison in June for his role as a leader of the 2014 umbrella movement protests, which called for universal suffrage in Hong Kong. Wang says, We are facing protests on the street and our freedoms are diminishing. We are very grateful to the people of Taiwan and their concern about the extradition bill in Hong Kong. Another major protest is underway in Hong Kong on July 1st. Wang estimates about 500,000 people are demonstrating. Democratic Progressive Party Secretary General Luo Wenjia says, whenever the people or refugees of any region or country are oppressed by an authoritarian government, we are willing to support them, even more so in the case of Hong Kong, which is so close to Taiwan. Wong says Hong Kong and Taiwan should unite in the fight for freedom and democracy. Natalie So, RTI News. And finally, we also have a story
5: about Hong Kong democracy activist Joshua Wong's visit to Taiwan last
4: month. Hong Kong democracy activist Joshua Wong arrived in Taiwan on Tuesday at the invitation of the Light Foundation. Wong was arrested in Hong Kong last Friday for his part in the protest and was released on
6: bail. Hong Kong and Taiwan both face oppression from China and we share the same fate. We in Hong Kong have seen the breakdown of the one country, two systems formula and don't see any future in it. We hope that friends in Taiwan can continue to support Hong Kong.
4: Wang will participate in discussion forums and is meeting top politicians from the Democratic Progressive Party and New Power Party during his two-day trip. He will also meet with lawmakers to see what humanitarian assistance can be offered to Hong Kong protesters. Wang said that Beijing is likely considering imposing martial law on Hong Kong, and the people of Hong Kong need Taiwan's support, especially leading up to China's National Day on October 1st.
6: I hope that today's Taiwan will be tomorrow's Hong Kong and that Hong Kong can enjoy freedom and democracy.
5: And that's all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our show today. For any comments or suggestions, you may write to RTI at RTI.org.tw. This is Paula Chow. Bye bye.
7: next year so we're going to bring to the National Taiwan Museum a collection of uh, over 140 uh, Australian works, These are uh painting, the so painting from bath, the basket of a tree.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's Online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Australia has the world's oldest continuous cultures in a world with around 500 different clan groups and each of them, according to Mr. Gary Cohen, has a distinctive culture and language. Mr. Gary Cohen is the representative of Australian Office Taiwan. Starting October 4th this year, his office brings the Old Masters exhibition showcasing the works of Australia's great bark painters to Taiwan. And to celebrate the International Year of Indigenous Languages, they will invite two women from Queensland to present the project Yamani Voices of an Ancient Land with the aim to protect Indigenous languages in Australia. To find out more, we are joined on the phone all the way from Australia by Mr. Gary Cohen, the representative of Australian Office Taiwan. First, can we talk about the cooperation in agriculture, Mr. Gary Cohen?
7: You know, just now, now, just now, I was visiting a, a banana research facility here in. Uh, Queensland, and um, there's been very good uh, agricultural research between Taiwan and Australia, and one area of that research has been into bananas and how we can um, help uh, find bananas that are more resistant to disease. Uh, Bananas are important to both Australia and Taiwan, so this is one area among many. Where they're working together closely. Um, another is in light and um, We know that Taiwan has some of the most delicious light in the world. So um, these are some of the research areas where they're, where they're working together. Uh, Taiwan also sends some of its excellent produce here, including uh, its famous orchids, the orchid flower. So, um, yeah, there's, there's there's a healthy uh, trade there. We do talk between our respective sectors. Every year we, we meet and we talk about uh, how we can deepen our agricultural um, connections and also whether there are any problems that we need to address, and, and we do that. And we're looking forward in due course to welcoming more Taiwanese agriculture products to Australia. Mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a very healthy, a very healthy relationship. On agriculture.
0: Kane's based fish farm exports coral trout fingerlings to Taiwan as well.
7: Yes, that's right. In fact, I visited a um, a farm, a fish farm, this morning where uh, it's, this company has grown from doing their research. Institute now to being a producer of singleins and they, they export to uh, Taiwan uh, coral trap singleins and also bruta uh, mm-hmm. uh, singlings And so once they arrive in Taiwan, um, some of your uh, fish farmers grow them, you know, they, they might grow for a few months or a few years and then eventually. Not oh, for a form of delicious dish in a restaurant, but um, yeah, it's, it's one of these areas of cooperation where we can help each other because the, the fingerlings have come from, um, yeah, from the U.S. in Australia.
0: So there are different sorts of the uh, coral trout fingerlings that we mentioned earlier, grouper fingerlings, and so on and so forth, yes. and these have been exported to Taiwan as well.
7: Yes, that's right.
0: We know Taiwan and Australia share a lot in common. We have both indigenous culture and Australia is home to the world's oldest continuous cultures, Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, how many tribes are there, Mr. Gary Cohen?
7: Yes, well, look, uh, we think that uh, the indigenous people of Australia have been here for some 50,000 years, perhaps even longer, so... It really is the, the longest continuing culture in the world. So we're, we're, we're part of that. Um, we think that there are around 500 different uh, people groups um, or time groups or nations around uh, the Australian continent um, and each of them with their own distinctive cultures, beliefs and languages and... Um, but at the same time part of a, a, a more complex overall, you know, tapestry of uh, Indigenous Australia. So um yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, an aspect of Australia that is very important for the first people of Australia and we're um, very proud of the cultural contribution they've made.
0: Uh-huh. So What are the similarities and differences uh, between the indigenous tribes in Australia and those in Taiwan, according to your observation?
7: Um, Look, I think one of the interesting points of similarity is that uh, our indigenous peoples are about the same proportion of our overall population, you know, somewhere a little bit over 2% of Australians are uh, Indigenous and I think that's also true of Taiwan that are two, three, two, one, but, uh, somewhere around 2% or a little bit more of your people are Indigenous. So that is a similarity because it can mean that they face some of the some, uh, challenges and perhaps opportunities as well in, in being, uh, you know, a, a, very, a relatively small proportion of the population. But a very significant one, uh, which is, to be honest, because it is the first. In Australia, too, maybe like in Taiwan, the last 30 years have seen a big growth in our understanding of Indigenous identity and the importance of our Indigenous people in our nation's story. And I, I, I think I've observed that same dynamic with uh, Taiwan it, 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 it it's recognized as being very important the the so, is, uh,
0: years ago. You're listening to Underline, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong, and today we are joined on the phone all the way from Australia by Mr. Gary Cohen, the representative of Australian Office Taiwan. We know that uh, both, I think, the governments of Taiwan and Australia have done a lot to promote the indigenous culture for example here in Taiwan the government has been encouraging uh, people to learn the indigenous language they have the indigenous television radio show and so on and so forth what about in Australia?
7: Uh, yeah we've had some of the same sorts of uh, programs actually so there is um, a national indigenous television network now that's been operating for a few years and I think it makes the difference because it controls not only those stories, the old stories of our Indigenous people, but also the stories of now. You know, how uh, these people are experiencing success or challenges now. but uh, So that has uh, actually been pretty uh, important, I think. And also, I think those things in clear essence to uh, help stimulate Indigenous business. Um, business, business So one example is that we have a, a very good the uh, really, Indigenous um, Business Australia and it's where to, to um, enter business and, and, and help Indigenous business, business and, and grow up to scale. So it provides some an expertise and, and many business opportunities and I, I think we'll be looking to see whether we can help export opportunities as well. mm
0: mm-hmm. And uh, one opportunity is the uh, indigenous artwork. We know that a range of uh, Australian indigenous artwork will be exhibited in Taiwan. Could you tell us more about this, Mr. Gary Cohen?
7: Yeah, look, I think, I think this is really exciting, actually. In uh, October, um, from the 4th of October until February uh, next year, we're going to bring to the National Taiwan Museum um, uh a collection of uh, over 140 uh, Australian works. Now, these, these are uh, paintings. They're so paintings on bark, the bark of these trees. Um, and they're an essentially distinctive form of Australian art. They come from uh, a group of artists in uh, the northwest of Australia in, a, in an area called Arnhem and And... Um, the, the works are by really some of the great uh, uh, Indigenous art masters. So we're very really proud to be bringing this collection um, to uh, Taiwan uh, in a month's time. It, uh, it's largely a story of identity. So one of the things that um, you see when the go to the exhibition is that it, it says a lot about the family ties, the clan membership. Uh, of the artist. You'll see some of the patterns on the glass but you'll also see patterns painted on the, uh, the, the skin of people in particular as we uh, uh, So it's, it's a special exhibition. This year we've been uh, celebrating a year of um, sharing treasures. So we've had a theme this uh, year the Australians are on a sharing our treasures and creating our future. And, uh, Early this year the National Honours Museum of, uh, in, in Taiwan sent down a, a, a major sort uh, of this election to be shown in uh, Sydney in Australia and um, anyway, to this uh, exhibition that we're doing in October, uh, we're showing to the people of Taiwan and front of Australia's Great pleasure. So, to be
0: doing that. Yeah, you mentioned 130 uh, works, including paintings and barks. Uh, we know uh, you mentioned the famous paintings, the Old Masters exhibition, uh, featuring Australia's great bark artists from Anham Land. And so, they carried the oldest continuing traditions of art into the modern era. So uh, these will be also showcased uh, in Taiwan on October 4th, starting October 4th until February next year. That's right.
7: So please, I'd encourage all your listeners to uh, to come to the exhibition, and it's going to be at the National Taiwan Museum in Taipei.
0: Yes, so we do encourage our listeners who live in Taiwan and do visit... uh, the exhibition here and uh, at the National Taiwan Museum starting on October 4th and this year also marks the international year of indigenous languages as declared by the United Nations um uh, Mr. Gary Cohen, what will you do more to enhance the exchanges between the indigenous peoples of Taiwan and Australia
7: Yes well I think it is an important area in our relationship between Australia and Thailand to to build on. I think, you know, there is a lot of connection potentially uh, in the experience of our Indigenous people. So we have for some years now been uh, working to help um, our Indigenous peoples get connected. Um, This year, uh, at the time of the tradition I was talking about, we're inviting a very uh, yeah, he's an Indigenous singer of Australia, Goya Batamangui. And he is from um, the younger people in uh, northern territory in the northern part of Australia. And he's done um, a number of years. He's become a very, very widely known singer and um, had success internationally and in Australia who's going to perform for us at the opening of the old Master's Art Exhibition. Mm-hmm. So that's very exciting. Also being two performers from the Yemeni project, um, two women who visit Thailand to share their stories in November. Um, and this project um, is joining people together and their languages to share voices of men through song. So... Uh, we're hoping to that uh, exchange also uh, to celebrate the Year of Indigenous uh, People's Languages, um, and also to deepen the, the exchanges between Taiwan and Australia. So, there will be a lot happening in the next two months on that
0: front. Mm-hmm. So, we do hope that there will be more exchanges between taiwan and australia in the future and we've been joined on the phone all the way from Keynes by mr gary cohen the representative of australian office taiwan and that's it for this week's on the line brought to you by radio taiwan international i'm carlson wong thank you for listening to us the next week, Bye bye
2: 320 kilohertz we'd love to hear from you